This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I was just thinking, seeing it a second time now, uh, how the, all the ways in which Joshua Oppenheimer has reanimated the past, the way, you know, by just unblinkingly, relentlessly, attending to the present, all the details, right, that come uh, here. And I was, as first time I thought there was no archival footage. This time I noticed that short clip from NBC towards the beginning. Right. That's about it. But without really any talking heads in the usual sense where, you know, people draw on uh, experts like historians or political theorists to talk about what really happened, to reflect on that. Not that, but kind of going directly to the people who are involved and who still continue to be involved in one way or another. Uh, it's a different kind of testimonial, much more fragile, much more personal, much more demonstrative. Um, in fact, it's the opposite of that. Um, you know, they're going around in this landscape of silence where people that they interact with are constantly saying, no, let's not talk about the past, leave it buried. And then there's this battle over how much will be allowed to be resuscitated. And at one point, some of the, well, at several points, some of the um, perpetrators say, oh, Adi, why are you asking about this? You're going too deep. Joshua never asked about these things. But of course, Joshua is deploying these people in confrontation with one another in order to probe that deep. Yeah. So some folks have written about this film as, uh, and also act of killing, as not being so much in the, you know, as being more in the observational mode where the documentary filmmaker kind of steps back and lets, lets things mm-hmm. happen. So clearly not, that's yeah, not the case. That doesn't seem to be the case for us at all in that he's, he's really deploying. There are all these techniques for making the past live again, even though, of course, people who are the perpetrators or the legislators or in government are capitalizing mm-hmm. on the past. So in that sense, it's, it's not at all gone. But there are all these techniques to, to resurrect it. So through those confrontations, I mean, mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the obvious ways, and I'm really struck by the way that when Adi is talking with someone, and going back to that member of the legislator again, le- legislature again, who threatens him, who says, well, if you bring these things up, it will happen again. You can see that in that very behavior, the, the type of behavior that made those things happen in the past yeah. So it, 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 Linda Williams actually talks about this in Postmodern Documentary, and I see it as kind of a transferential scene, the replaying of these complexes of the past in the ple- present. So it's not just what they say in the present, it's that their behavior is the behavior that they enacted in the past during the perpetration of these. So one acts. of the other ways it comes back, uh, I mean, Josh's own involvement is in the terms of the reenactments. And strictly yeah. speaking, it seems, yeah. it seems like only the truck scenes are the reenactments. Yeah, it well. ends with the truck, right? And, 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 and that's not necessarily a proper reenactment after all, because we don't yeah. know what that truck really uh, connotes. Sure, it it's, could be just merchandise. There it is. But yeah, it could just be, some, yeah, it yeah. just could be a late night delivery or something. But you assume that it's the truck in which they were, you know, uh, taken to their deaths. But, but so that does seem like a, a form of reenactment different from the other types of reenactment, which are those demonstrations. 
And um, which is much more central to act of killing, the previous film. I think that's the... Yeah, but in the previous film, yeah, there are these reenactments with the perpetrators pl- playing both the killers and the victims. Have people seen the act of killing? Okay, so, yeah, so some people... So, Janet, I wanted to ask you to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, you've written so eloquently in Film Quarterly about the recreation of the crime scene, if you would yeah. tell us a bit about yeah, your thoughts thanks. on that. Thanks. Well, well, I'm really influenced by the work of Greg Siegel, who talks about how, although there have always been killings and always have been deaths, mm-hmm. obviously, in, in forms of torture, these have always taken place. It wasn't until the 19th century, with the invention of forensic science, mm-hmm. that the crime scene as such was marked. So there was a marking and a measuring and a calculating and an interpreting that brought the crime scene into existence. And so I really think that that's what's happening in this film. You have this landscape where there's been impunity, where there's been silence, where you just have a road or a grassy slope. But then by repeopling that landscape, yeah. you're bringing into being or you're producing a crime scene. And so I think that that's the work of these films, even though people may have these ethical questions about the film. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking, you know, that there's not really any scene about excavating the mass grave or something like that, that no. you see in many other films like this. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just the way they keep going back to that one grassy slope leading to the river yeah. and with various people at different yeah, points. Yeah, they're not at that stage. Yeah. I mean, they've been living next door to one another since the mid-60s, living, you know, neighbor to neighbor, killers and, and survivors. Yeah. And so... And the yeah. other set of uh, images that really struck me in both films are definitely Oppenheimer's inserts, which are sort of the, the looks of silence here. Yeah. What do you make of all those looks of silence? Well, you know, there's, I, I can remember the first one here is the bridge. These are all long shots, right, of the bridge at night with the crickets, there's always this orchestra of crickets. And then there's uh, the bird circling in the night sky. Then the river flowing in the daytime. Then the river flowing at night under the bridge. Then there's also a long shot of what looks like a couple of tents. And some kids are playing on a stage. Right. And some passing by. So these are the moments which those, with those inserts we get a chance to kind of contemplate on what, what we are watching. It's a pretty intense right. film. Right, since but, we need a break. Yeah. <laughs> But I think mm-hmm. it also is about the way the whole uh, milieu, the landscape, is inhabited by these ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also about, <laughs> I think, uh, in relation to Ali's silent look. Sometimes he just falls silent right. as he's talking to the people. And there are these uncomfortable moments when the perpetrators, Nadi, both sort of fall silent. And those are the moments in which there's, there's some kind of reckoning going on that we are privy to at that point. And, and not, not to mention that he just happens to be an optometrist. Yeah. And so he just happens to be fitting all these perpetrators with their new lenses. And at one point I'm really struck by the fact that the, the one guy, Inong, I think he says, Inong says, oh, well, well, just give me some reading glasses, as if to say, I don't want to look into the distance. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just be here <laughs> with my books or something. So uh, uh, we could probably talk a bit uh, about the ethical yeah. question 
And I, I really want you to talk about it. Well, no, I really want to. <laughs> I, no, I, I definitely want you to talk about it. Well, I mean, I, I'm someone who thinks that the film is not an unethical, even though there's a situation where he's, he's going to the children of perpetrators and saying, your father did this. You've got to know that your father did this. And some are crying and some are resisting and some are apologizing. So you could say that that's a form of re-traumatization or tra- traumatization, and then what with Adi and deploying him like that, he's being traumatized in the second generation context. He wasn't even born at the time of these yeah. events, but now he's being traumatized. So people have been critical of the film for that reason, as if to say, well, why bring it up when it's causing a problem for all these people who might be able to just get along? But um, So I think that in that case, those questions about documentary ethics aren't completely applicable because of the, the purpose of this film is precisely to bring these matters up. But I think there was one passage that really bothered you. <laughs> yeah, well, the ethics question is always interesting because it always has to be kind of, I think, uh, approached in terms of what situation is the question arising in. Right. There cannot be any predetermined ethics, per se, of documentary, right? But yeah, the That's one what we thing, think. Others would not yeah, agree with that, but we agree. Not necessarily, yeah. yeah, and we can talk more about this. But uh, one, the one scene that really bugged me a lot uh, was towards the end when the father is desperately trying to figure it out and he mm-hmm. can't really see. And I'm thinking, why are you letting him suffer like that? Like, just give it up, just stop it. You need it. to intervene. Yeah, yeah. You, need, you need to rescue him from his predicament. But, um, well, we, maybe yeah. not to tell. Not to because tell. Because Joshua, Joshua had something to say about that. So you probably know that we uh, taped an interview with him yesterday because he couldn't be here today. Uh, he wanted to come, but then he couldn't really make it, and so he wanted to come virtually in this space, you know, yeah. via Skype. And uh, so it's about twenty minutes. Uh, it's remarkable what he has to say and the way he says it. He's just such an animated person. So, so we thought we? we'd show it, and then we'd open it up because I'm sure you'll want to chime into the conversation. Hello, I'm Professor Janet Walker, and I'm here with my colleague, Professor Bashkar Sharkar of the Department of Film and Media Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And we are very happy to be here talking long distance with award-winning filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, whose previous documentary, The Act of Killing, about the Indonesian killings of 1965 and 1966, has been shown all around the world in dozens of countries, has received scores of awards, and also an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary. And I should also say that Joshua Oppenheimer is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship known as the Genius Award. Um, The occasion of this conversation is a screening of his new film, The, The Look of Silence, which is a companion film to the act of killing at the Pollock Theater on our campus. And this film premiered at the Venice International Film Festival where it won a bunch of awards and then has been screened around the world to great acclaim and I, I believe just uh, just premiered in Austria as we hear. Our Pollock Theater audience will have just seen The Look of Silence and we are pleased and honored to be interviewing Joshua on behalf of our campus community and also members of the public who are joining us for this screening and also for those who will watch later online. So welcome, Joshua. 
Thank you so much. We'd like to begin by asking you how you started out, both as a documentary filmmaker and then importantly with your work in Indonesia. Well, I, I first began, um, actually I first went to university to study theoretical physics and cosmology because I was interested in, in what are we and what is consciousness. And I was interested how in quantum mechanics consciousness, the act of observing something, is part of the thing that you affects and changes that which you observe. And uh, it was a boring time in physics when they were pushing everybody into engineering because the, the, it was before this Hubble Space Telescope was sending back images and before there was string theory and before the big particle accelerators were up and running. So it was a kind of tedious time, at least that's how it seemed to me. And so I started, and I realized that these questions I was interested in were really metaphysical, they were philosophical. And then I started to, I switched into philosophy and then started to realize that philosophy, that these questions I think really can only be known through experience. And somehow, in a circuitous way, seized upon filmmaking and nonfiction filmmaking in particular as a life practice that could make these, this exploration that which I do with my whole life. So I came to film... Uh, always interested in this kind of interface between fiction and nonfiction, and uh, ultimately through the work of Jean Rouge started to explore how uh, the nonfiction camera could be used to make visible the fantasies, the fictions that make us what, through which we know ourselves, and that strange gap between the different fantasies and fictions. And, and you know, when, when, when one when you film anybody, they start performing, they start acting out these idealized images of themselves and you can witness the, the, the moment where the mask goes on and off and there's a gap there the gap between the mask and I don't want to say the real self because our real self is also through the masks we wear but it's a, maybe the gap is as much part of the self as the mask hmm. and it's something maybe, but it is somehow identified with the authentic in film because through the, that gap and the choreography of that gap we can understand how the mask functions, what it does in a person's life, what they're trying to compensate for. Anyways, with these thoughts in mind, I first was asked to go to Indonesia in 2001 to teach a group of plantation workers how to make a film in which they would document their own struggle to organize a union in the aftermath of the Suharto dictatorship under which unions have been illegal. And when I arrived there, I was sent to a Belgian-owned oil palm plantation in a remote part of the country where foreigners would never visit, and found that the women workers on this plantation were dying in their 40s of liver disease. And we traced it to one herbicide that they were being forced to spray. And one of the first things they did as a union was to ask the company for protective clothing. The company's response was to hire a paramilitary group called Panchasila Youth, which is at the center of my first film, The Act of Killing, yeah. to threaten and attack the workers who dropped their demands immediately, saying, yeah. our parents and our grandparents were killed for be as part of a mass killing here in 1965 simply because they were members of the National Plantation Workers Union and therefore were seen as likely opponents of the new dictatorship and were afraid this could happen to them again. At which point, I understood what was killing my friends was not just poison, but also fear. And what was keeping everything produced in Indonesia cheap for the Western consumer, from oil palm, palm oil to clothing from sweatshops to electronics from uh, electronic factories, 
so essentially maquiladoras, but in Indonesia. But was keeping all this stuff cheap is fear. And we're consumers of that fear. So when the perpetrators said, uh, and, and these, these thugs hired by the company, I realized in a way, indirectly, whether I like it or not, are working for me. So when the survivors said, come back and why don't you make a film now about why we're still afraid, something too sensitive for us to do our, ourselves, I, I felt I had, a, I, I had no choice but to say yes. And I went back and in early 2003, first met Romley's family, Adi's family, the family wow. at the center of the look of silence. Wow. And then uh, they started gathering survivors to tell me their stories. After three weeks, the army threatened them not to participate in the film. And the survivors, and then ultimately the whole Indonesian criminal rights community encouraged me to film the perpetrators, something I was afraid to do. But when I overcame that fear and approached them, found they were boastful. I spent the next seven years filming the perpetrators. Adi, the main character in The Look of Silence, would watch everything I had time to, to film. I, sorry, everything I had time to show him. And after editing the act, that led, of course, to the act of killing. And after editing the act of killing, I returned before it had its first screening, at which point I knew I couldn't safely return to Indonesia at all oh. to shoot the of silence with Adi and his family. Oh. So, uh, Joshua, I was wondering, also, like, how exactly did you find Adi? Like, what was it that brought you to so, so when I returned to Indonesia in 2003, after the plantation workers had come back, it was January 2003, uh, the survivors um, immediately introduced me to Adi's parents because Romley, Adi's brother who was killed, had become like a synonym for the genocide across that, on that plantation, but for like maybe a 20-mile radius because in that region, tens of thousands of people had been taken to rivers like Snake River, the river you see in the, in the Look of Silence, and killed, their, their bodies thrown into the rivers, allowed to drift out to sea, and their families never told what happened. So the families couldn't grieve, couldn't work through their grief. They couldn't mourn. This is why disappearance is such a terrible crime. You can't admit that your loved ones have died. Even 40 years on, they were saying they haven't come home yet because they didn't have confirmation that they died. They, they, they would cling to the never-quite-vanishing hope that they might one day come back. And after... Um, after Adi, uh, sorry, uh, what they, but what they could talk about was Romley, because Romley's murder was the one murder in the region that had witnesses. There was a grave. It's the grave you see yeah, Rohani and Adi visit. With the white stones. We were wondering, yes. is his that, body buried there? Romley's buried there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was, the, the, and it's, can he, I, I don't think anyone's disturbed by it, but it is confusing in the sense that we hear the story at Snake River, so we maybe naturally assume he was killed at Snake River. But he was actually killed, he was uh, running away on the way to Snake River and was ultimately dumped in the plantation. And so people could talk about Romley's murder was uh, incontrovertible. And so people would talk about Romley as a way of giving expression to some of the grief that they couldn't talk about in their own lives. And slowly he became a synonym for the killings. I fell in love with Rohani, Adi's mother, right away, and she wanted me to meet Adi, saying that thinking of him as a veritable replacement for Romney, saying yeah, to understand what film. I, it seems a miracle. Yeah, to what to understand what I've lost, she said, you must meet him. He looks like Romney, talks like Romney, acts like Romney. Oh. Called him to the village. Here was this young man who had heard the government, who knew from school the government propaganda celebrating the killings. There was a government propaganda film that you see in the 
mm-hmm. so-called director's cut of the act of killing. It's the it was it's if you have only seen the U.S. theatrical cut on on Netflix, you can find the director's cut. That that was the theatrical cut everywhere else in the world. Um, but when you but in in the act of killing, you see there was this government propaganda film that basically graphically depicted the history lesson you see Adi's son learning in The Look of right. Silence. Right. Adi learned that when he was, it came out when Adi was 13. But when Adi, and, in, and Adi felt it must be a lie because at home his mother would repeat, as he put it, morning, noon, and night, the story of Romney's murder. But he had no idea what happened beyond that. He didn't know that every child he played with in the village had lost one, two, three, five people. No family had lost fewer than one immediate members in that everyone had lost at least someone because no one would talk about it. So he latched onto my filmmaking to understand what had happened to his family, what had happened to his village, what had happened to his country. And he really took the lead in first gathering survivors to talk to me and then encouraged me, encouraging me well, that, to film the perpetrators. That the question because we were really wondering whether he had already been involved in these investigations before meeting you or whether it really was the film that... He's not the inspired. credited as anonymous. He's, he's, never, he's not at all involved with the production of The Act of Killing and he's not the person credited as anonymous here. He's obviously not anonymous, but he was a very... Hmm. important fellow traveler for me from the very beginning. How did you develop this kind of uh, deep trust you know, with the perpetrators? They seem to really trust you. Well, I think that... Really, did at one time. Yeah, I actually think that the perp... I think that to some extent it's illusory. I think in, in the look of silence. I mean, Anwar Congo really not, not just trusts me, but cares for me. And still today, Anwar and I are very close. Hmm. But... All of the, of course, perpetrators in The Look of Silence feel betrayed and hate me, and all of the important politicians in The, look, in the Act of Killing also hate me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it feels very intimate, the confrontations in The Look of Silence, because of the eye tests. And, and one other thing. First of all, right. the perpetrators know that I have made a film with Anwar. And not just Anwar, but the vice president, the national leader of the paramilitary movement, the governor. And that was newsworthy. I mean, you remember that in the act of killing, Indonesian state television produced a talk show celebrating the film while we were shooting it. So everyone in the region knew I was thought of me as close to the most powerful men in the country. And I returned in 2012 to shoot The Look of Silence before the act of killing had its first screenings. So when I arrived, Adi said, I must confront the men who killed my brother. I've spent seven years filming them and seeing the footage of them. It's changed me. I need to meet them. And I said immediately, absolutely not. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. Adi then took a camera out that I'd given him and one tape and said, I'm sorry, I never sent you this tape. He was sending me tapes that he thought might inspire the making of the second film, which I knew I would make all the way back from 2003 Mm -hmm. when I I began. I knew there would be two films. Mm -hmm. He, he sent me this, he took this tape and he showed, put, said, I never sent, sent this to you because it's personal. And he played it for me and immediately started to cry and showed me the one scene in the film that he shot. And that's the scene with his father crawling through the house at the end, oh, calling help. That does he, stand out. Yeah, and he said, he said you see, uh, this was the first day my father couldn't remember anyone in the family. We were all together for the end of Ramadan. And uh, I brought the camera, honestly, just to, to make a home video. But uh, my dad was, couldn't, was 
confused, lost, raving all day, and we couldn't comfort him. The only way we could comfort him was to go up and put our arm, to the only way we could even get his attention was to touch him because he was nearly blind and nearly deaf, and he would shriek with fear, and they would back off, and the rest of the family would go in the other room, but Adi couldn't bear just hearing his dad crying, and, and he also was worried his dad would fall or hit something, so he needed, stayed with him. And he was holding the camera because he didn't want the kids to break it, but he couldn't bear just having his father crawling around in front of him and doing nothing, so he started to film. And he said, the moment I started to film, I realized I was documenting the day that it became too late for my father to heal because he's forgotten the son whose murder destroyed our family's life, but he hasn't forgotten the fear. And now he'll never forget the fear, work through the fear because he can't remember what happened. And he'll, like millions of survivors, he'll die in a prison of fear, and I don't want this to happen to my children. I don't want my children to inherit this prison of fear from my father and from me and from my mother. And I think if I, and I owe it to my children as a parent to try to reach out to the perpetrators who we live amongst to see if they can, will welcome this as a chance to be forgiven by one of their victims' families to stop this frantic boasting, which Adi always thought was defensive, and, and to make peace with their neighbors. And I was very moved. My Indonesian crew, and finally I'm going to answer your question about the intimacy, said, look, they think you're, clo you're close to the most powerful man in the country because no one's seen the act of killing yet. So they won't dare detain you, let alone physically attack you. They'll welcome you. And that's why they're, they're welcoming us. But I didn't know them well. The, apart from the last family the, with the widow and the two sons whom I'd spent three months with, everyone else in the film, I just filmed one, two, three, five days, seven years earlier. The intimacy is established because I realized that they knew me and they would be nice to me because they thought I was close to their commanders. But they didn't know Adi. And I would come and I'd introduce Adi. I'd say Adi's a... Uh, I would say Adi is a... A um, friend of mine who has his own personal relationship to the killings, you may have different views. Try to listen to one another because I was hopeful that there would be this, I hoped there would be this reconciliation, even though I doubted it would happen. I thought that we would be filming failure after failure, which is indeed what happened. But I realized that at least Adi could establish rapport with them if he would test their eyes. I knew from, that he was yeah. looking for he old. He happened to be an optometrist. He's an optometrist, and midway through shooting the act of killing, he started seeking out old people to mm -hmm. test their eyes in order to ask questions about what happened in 1965. And I um, filmed, that's what you see at the beginning with the old woman, and I saw that he would develop, even if, the uh, question, even if they felt that he was asking questions that were too deep and it was tense, um, it was still intimate. So I realized Adi, the eye test would establish this intimacy, which is, I think, what you were feeling. And I also had told Adi, I said, Adi, maybe we can do this safely, but I have to warn you, I don't think we'll get the apology you're hoping for. I think mm -hmm. the, you looking at them as a human being, which is what he would, would be doing when he says, I can forgive you, won't make it easier for them. It'll make it harder because they'll be forced... Um, they, will, they will be forced to... Um, they, you looking at them as a human being will make it harder because they'll be, reforced, they'll be forced to return your humanizing gaze and see you as a human, wrongly as a human, all of their victims as humans. And that will undermine all the lies they've told themselves justifying what they've done. Mm -hmm. So I said, 
and they'll panic, I said. And I think that they will panic, they'll get angry. But I said, if I can film why these confrontations fail, why you don't get the reconciliation, mm-hmm. with intimacy and precision, I can make visible, yeah. previously invisible abyss of fear and guilt that's dividing everybody, and therefore make everyone who sees the film somehow support truth, justice, and reconciliation. Yeah. And I knew the eye test would be a way of establishing that intimacy that would allow me to film that reactions with intimacy. So, so that, that introducing people to one another is one of the main things that you do to change that landscape. But then the other thing that's so striking about the film is that you have filmed these demonstrations by the, perpetrator of the perpetrators of their acts right on site. So unlike Holocaust films, which generally, not always, and it's starting to change, but, but historically, um, Holocaust survivors have been filmed in the United States or Israel, away from the camps and away from Europe, whereas you bring people to the very spots where these acts of killing took place. And so that's the other thing that's so striking about the film. It's really suppose kind of Shoah a, does that as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Shoah does. It's this kind of, yeah, he, it begins with Simon Shrebnik. Yes, you're, yeah, of course. But I'm just wondering, that filming in place and that creation, how did it come to you to, to do the filming and to have Enong um, and the other perpetrator demonstrate their act right on the spot on the bank of the river? Well, the perpetrators would offer to take me to the places to show me what they'd done. But I also thought, I think that just as later with Anwar, when Anwar Congo in the act of killing danced on the roof, I felt his pain was there mm-hmm. and he couldn't acknowledge it. He said, I, am a good, I would go crazy if I think about this too much. I, so I go out drinking, taking drugs, dancing. Look, I'll show you when he starts to dance as though to dispel his pain. Mm-hmm. And I think it crystallized for me there that actually the boasting is defensive. It's a way of dispelling pain that comes up, that's haunting them all the time. And it, just as I would then respond to that by showing Anwar the footage to see if he could recognize the, the horror of what he's talking, uh, the, 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 the moral meaning of what he's done, the horror that's tailing him, if you like, in the mirror of the footage, I think I wanted to challenge the boasting to see if, they, if it would cha- how they would, if it would, to see how they would respond to being at the location. And when they were at the location, they would actually become more defensive, predictably, and boast all the more. And, say, get over here, film us from and this angle. And then I felt, of course, that because they were banishing, trying to banish, in a way, the ghosts through their boastful way of talking. That's a front door. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, because they were trying to banish the ghosts through their way of talking, I felt that, um, I guess I felt that they... Uh, yeah, because they were trying to bear, I felt the absence of the ghosts in their account, but I felt them all around me. So I tried to uh, then film the landscapes, and it's a very important passage where Amir Hassan and Enon go down to the river, and Adi watches, and then it cuts to Kamat yeah, going down to the river right. with, with, Amir, with, uh, with Adi, and they're whispering, and they're ta- Kamat's whispering, he's talking to the ghosts. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to the river. And for me, that's as close as any shot I've ever made of a dead body, the water passing. 
And one of the ways I handled the landscape, I mean, I edited, I made this film after editing the act of, the act of killing and the director's cut of the act of killing is punctuated. The shorter versions are not, but the director's cut's punctuated by these abrupt cuts to silence, these haunted silences. <laughs> and I wanted to bring you as a viewer in this film into any one of those haunted silences and make you feel what is it like to live there in this haunted space. So the landscapes in both films, in the director's cut of the act of killing and in the look of silence, are shot at the same time, by and large. It's the one part of the production that overlapped. And I took out all of the sound, all the natural sounds that would just make it feel like an everyday place, mm -hmm. and replaced them with this chorus of crickets. There's, in fact, yeah. 16 yeah. tracks of in 16 yeah, tracks of crickets. Yeah, there's, there's solo crickets that trail, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And when you're intimate with Adi's mother or father, that's usually all you hear. Mm -hmm. And there's a symphony of crickets over these landscapes. And for me, this is the ghost. These are the ghosts. This mm -hmm. is the, the ghosts that are inevitably abroad when the dead are unburied and even unmourned. Not unmissed, but unmourned. Because people are not allowed to work through their grief. And they are not allowed to do the work of mourning. And so four times in the film, four times in the film, out of this bath of crickets, we find... And indeed, the first time we meet anyone in, uh, in Adi's family, when we, we, cut to, we come to Ramli's mother, Adi's mother, through her voice. Yeah. The first time we find her, it's through her voice, and she's yeah. talking to one of those ghosts, Ramli. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that got the sense that we're meeting a family that's living amongst ghosts and is in dialogue with ghosts. That's something that I think, maybe because the Holocaust was universally acknowledged as wrong, mm -hmm. that's something that landsmen maybe never felt the need to do in Shoah because the dead were acknowledged yeah. and they were more. Right. So Joshua, one of the questions I had for you was, you know, the crime scenes that you are reconstructing in these two films, they're part of a larger geopolitics of violence. And there's a great moment in one of the perpetrators turns on you and says, we deserve a trip to America because we did it for America. To what extent was that sense of culpability on, in your thoughts as you made these films? And like, what kind of decisions were you making about how explicit you were going to go with that or keep it kind of it was, more implicit? It was very much in my thoughts and in my mind the whole time. I was, in fact, not just... I worked my way up the chain of command from this plantation village where I began this work to um, retired army generals living outside of Jakarta, but also to retired State Department officials and CIA officers who helped engineer the killings. One of them boasted about providing lists of 5,000 names of Indonesian public figures, teachers, journalists, uh, uh, doctors, women's, move, women's rights activists, giving them to the army and saying, check off the names because these are likely opponents of the new, new order you're establishing check off the names as you kill these people and give the list back to us when you're done. This was in my head the whole time, but I couldn't find a way of telling that story in these two films without making a historical film. And also it's unclear, um, and, and, and these films are very, very rigorously about the moment in which they're being filmed. Right. And... And of course, I could have the moment of boasting for the perpetrators, but the American perpetrators, but they're living in another reality, in another place. They have no interaction with the space I'm working. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Janet, you've talked about the way I've worked on like establishing a crime scene. Right, producing. They a crime would be part scene of the crime, but they're not part of yeah. that scene. 
not part of the state. So it was more I, like I, fog of war or something. The in the act of killing, I really tried very hard to make America. It says right at the beginning that the United States supported the killings. Right. It's right in the opening. It doesn't say it in the opening in the Look of Silence because you find it out in a very direct way through the passage you described uh, later. But I try to make America a, a character that haunts the whole act of killing, not just in the Hollywood movies, but also in yeah. the uh, yeah. shopping malls and the, uh, the world of television. Herman is practicing his political speeches by imitating Obama. And yeah. in the Look of Silence, I... Uh, the, there is this moment you refer to. There's also another very, very important moment when we learn that Goodyear, in an American television broadcast, right. Goodyear. NBC speaks admiringly, really, of Goodyear for using yeah. slaves drawn from death camps to yeah. harvest the latex that goes into our tires yeah. and in our conducts. This should give us pause and make yeah. us wonder to what extent is ideological anti-communism, or for that matter today, ideological an or anti-terrorism, yeah. The real yeah. reason for U.S. foreign policy, and to what extent is that a ruse, an yeah. excuse for murderous, at, at times murderous, corporate plunder? Yeah, your concision there is remarkable. Instead of going down the rabbit hole of explicating everything yeah. intricately, I mean, it's you just have a you. way of saying it in such a such shorthand but powerful aspects of the work. Yeah, yeah. So. Would you like to add? We're wondering if you had anything to add that you felt we Well, I'll just, since on that note, I'll just, I'll, I'll add one thing only because it ties in directly. This is a movie not just about Indonesian history, it's about American history. Mm -hmm. This genocide is in part the work of the United States, but the details. And the U.S. committed similar crimes across the global South dozens of times. Mm -hmm. And the, mm -hmm. the details of American involvement in the genocide remain secret. And we need to break our silence at home. Our rhetoric about human rights abuse will be seen correctly as a hypocritical ruse for advancing American strategic and commercial interests until we find the courage to acknowledge our own human rights abuse. And there's a resolution in the U.S. Senate now. After Senator Tom Udall from New Mexico saw both films, he introduced a resolution demanding that the United States declassify its, all of the documents revealing really what we did in terms of how much money, how many weapons, what kind of training, how involved were we in masterminding the events that would trigger the genocide. And there, you can support the passage of this resolution by going to thelookofsilence.com forward slash participate and sign a petition urging your senators to sign the to sign to sponsor the resolution. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for talking with us in our theater audience today. And we hope to welcome you sometime very soon in person. In person. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I had a question about um, how some of the perpetrators were talking about drinking the blood and mm -hmm. in some way making them not crazy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is this a, anything that you mentioned in the interview or anything that you guys can speak on? Was it a... Uh, throw back to an earlier cultural tradition there or something? We assume that it's a, it's a way of sacralizing what it is they do in order to be able to continue under what are, what's obviously really trying psychological circumstances at the moment. And in the act of killing, there's a guy who uh, does this kind of drag of some kind of a sorceress or witch and comes and 
drinks the blood, like in a very performative way. Um, it may be that, you know, going to that ritual aspect makes it kind of efficacious in a traditional sense, and that gives it a certain kind of rooting or, you know, mooring that helps them deal with it. Um, first of all, thank you so much for this talk. Uh, I, I loved Active Killing, and um, this is obviously my first time seeing this film, yeah. and it's equally beautiful. Um, I, I like that you pointed out the, the um, sort of the metaphor of the, the glasses, and uh, it's interesting that Joshua seems like, almost like, he, I don't know if he's aware that he's producing this, because for him it's like this way of producing intimacy and getting mm-hmm. um, Ari with the, the um, interview subjects. But another metaphor I'm kind of struck by, and I'm sort of wondering what your thoughts are, are the little um, jumping beans that sort of run through. Yeah, and it they, seems they like seem to be. there's a similar um, something going on with those. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. It's a good question. Yeah, chrysalis? They're, they're chrysalises. Yeah. yeah, so butterflies will be emerging from those. And then, and then they're early on in the film you see them. You don't quite know what to make. And then later on, the mother is holding those. And it's, you know... I think it's great that they're not explained in the film, so I don't want to over-explain, but since you're really asking about it, you, you get the impression that, that there is a lot still to be said, and, and you know they have not gone through any kind of truth and reconciliation process, and they're still living right there. So they're not only returning to a site and, and filming mm-hmm. where things took place, but they're still there after all those years. So one assumes that there's more to emerge that, and that's how I read it, but I, I realize, of course, it's open to multiple readings. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because it's another one of those times when he is so great about not inserting some kind of explanatory graphic or title or voiceover or whatever, but just leaving you to think your thoughts about it. I have to confess, the first time I saw it, I thought it was coffee beans, you know, this is how we experience Indonesia yeah. in our daily life, right? <laughs> Nike yeah. shoes and coffee. Yeah. And that's one of his points, I think, in thinking about how we are all complicit in what has gone on and what mm. keeps on going on. Yeah, I was a little bit confused about the timeline. When he's doing yeah. the reenactment with the two men who actually kill Romley, mm-hmm. that must have been filmed much earlier because those guys are dead by the time he films the... Yeah. Widow and the two sons. So he was there in, in the well, he was there in the early two thousands and he did that filming in two thousand and three. And then that was when he, he was filming a number of other perpetrators and they were boastful and they, they were very open to talking with him. And one of the reasons why he didn't film survivors at, or didn't film as many survivors is that it was still at a great risk for them to be speaking. And so they kept um, kind of ushering him over toward the perpetrators. So those were done in, those interviews were done in 2003. Then came the, the work on the act of killing, which for those of you who haven't seen it, involves these, him deploying these perpetrators and, and having them act out the very killings that they did in apartments where they took place, on a sound stage at a studio. So he works with these perpetrators. So then all these years go by, and then finally he goes back in 2012, and that's when he films with Adi again. And by then the one guy, uh, Amir Hassan, has, has passed away, and, and we're left with the widow. But the other guy, Inong, is still there. He's the one with, who gets angry, really angry. And says, give me the reading, just make some reading glasses. That's Inong. Okay, so the follow-up question is, do you think the widow really didn't know of the existence of that book? 
I mean, if he had filmed it well, in 2003 <laughs> when he was still alive and he's showing it openly, we know. And he shows the widow the footage. We she's know. She's standing there in the shot when he's showing the book. So, so it, it is interesting <laughs> because then she says, I, either I know I never knew about this or I don't remember, but we know that she had known at a certain point in time, but of course it just shows you the work of, of forgetting or these convenient amnesias that take place. Yeah. I was curious about um, the, the emphasis on the father's body in this film, mm-hmm. because it starts with the long sequence of you know, the, the mother actually taking. Yeah. And I understand an act of killing so much of the reenac- reenactment is about embodied ticks and, you know, you kind of watch the twitching of the body of the male perpetrate- perpetrators who are now older. So there's a lot of the father's body in many ways throughout mm-hmm. the films. But here there seems to be a kind of a different kind of emphasis. And I don't know if I've quite... I, Seeing it on, mm-hmm. on a larger screen, it made, made it more. So can you talk a little bit about that? I, uh, the way I saw it, you know, it's about an, uh, someone with dementia or Alzheimer's who's lost memory. So it's about uh, someone with a lack of memory in a way, right? So, I mean, that's sort of what you have to get over. Otherwise, you get to that kind of stage of emaciated, like a body politic. I'm thinking like that right now. And, and it's a, several other things. It's, it's about the, the urgency, I think, of bringing these, these crimes to the fore before it's too late or before they're you know, completely forgotten. And so I think that it does... You know, they are some of the most difficult scenes of the film, oddly since it's a guy, his body, and dementia, but yet it's, yeah, it really brings to the fore the, the frailty of memory and, and the need to articulate what really went on. And then just in terms of the, the, the comfortableness with the body, there, there's that moment when the wife throws a cloth onto the, the, the lap of her husband as he's naked and pulling himself up into the wheelchair. And it's really one of the few moments when there is a, a kind of consciousness of being filmed. I think the other moment is the hysterical laughter of the little girl who mm-hmm. seems to be so aware of the camera in that moment. So maybe that, that family scene works on so many different levels. You know, it is the primal family scene of the film even though there's a missing brother, as is often the case in these, um, you know, and to atrocious get events. A bit more literal, even I'm thinking maybe the stress of what he has lived with is partly responsible for the Alzheimer's because these kind of degenerative diseases are often related back to stress. The mother says, "I would have gone crazy had I not had you, Adi. Yeah. I prayed for you." I haven't seen The Act of Killing, but I was curious as to what drew Josh to the topic um, and also how um, Errol Morris and Werner Herzog got involved. Got involved, yeah. Well, actually, if you do watch the beginning of this interview, we, we, our first question, which you don't see in what we played for you, was, well, how did you get involved in filmmaking and how did you get involved in Indonesia? And so then he begins and he says... Well, I was a physics major. <laughs> and then he just talks about um, 
uh, it's remarkable. It will give you a lot of hope. You don't need to have a clear plan to succeed in life. <laughs> but he talks about ghosts and masks and wanting to turn things around from different perspectives. So he does talk a little bit about that, and I'm not exactly sure. So in 2001, sure I think he, he did study film in Harvard as an undergraduate. And then in 2001, he ends up in Indonesia uh, on the plantation working with union leaders, making right. media that are trying to resist this kind of very repressive government structure that's there in Indonesia. And, uh, you know, from that, he realized that all this has gone on, and he gets into this slowly. And what we can say to the other part of your question, and these are very tough questions you're all asking, is that, that the act of killing is, is so deeply influenced by Errol Morris with the, the whole idea that if you, if you reenact something, you can somehow get to a kind of truth that is more difficult to get to if all you're doing is cinema verite or observational cinema, letting things unfold. But if you manipulate and if you deploy, then perhaps paradoxically you get to it. So it has all these song and dance numbers and all these flourishes, as well as the scenes of, of torture and killing. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how they, frankly, how they, how they became involved, but I see the influence is pretty clear. So Joshua brings up how a lot of the American sort of response to the film, especially with the, um, the I believe it was the Senate or House of Representatives resolution, um, but never really touched upon any sort of conclusion in Indonesia itself. Uh, he brought up how Indonesia celebrated the film, had the interview and everything during the process of making it, but never went to kind of the conclusion. All he really says is that, mm-hmm. yeah, they all hate me and I'm never allowed in the country, which is obvious from yeah. um, the response and everything. But in Indonesia, has there ever been any sort of showing, anything of that sort, any sort of response to the film itself? It's, it's unfolding as... I don't know if he, it's, yeah. it's unfolding. So when he, when he made the act of killing, these uh, perpetrators were still being celebrated, and there's a scene in the act of killing where they go on this talk show and boast about their acts in that context. And also in the act of killing, the other perpetrator, who, whose name happens also to be Adi, but the other perpetrator besides Anwar Con- Congo in the act of killing says, oh, well the statute of limitations is up and there's not going to be any more problem. But actually there are a lot of you know, international criminal court proceedings that could still transpire. So it's, it's definitely still unfolding. It's really the beginning of a long process. Yeah. But you know, I was also noticing, uh, I read somewhere online that Anwar Congo has, is thinking of suing him. Whereas in our interview he says clearly that I'm very close to him even today. He really has so much love for me. And he kind of started to choke up, if you noticed. Um, so yeah, it's he, kind of he very really interesting. Cares about me. Yeah. Yeah, suing and caring about are clearly not mutually exclusive. <laughs> one may be a public thing, one may be a private thing. <laughs> well, also, you know, going to that question again. One always asks, well, does a documentary film make any difference whatsoever in the world? I go to it, I see it, it exposes some kinds of social problems, and then I just go back under my cabbage. Well, this film is going to make a difference. You know, these two films already are making a difference in the world. So we shall see. We're in the middle of the story in a way.
Yeah, so the interview was really fantastic yes. and interesting in a lot of ways. And I was just, I was curious to hear Joshua talk about this difference between what it would be for him to make a historical documentary versus a documentary based within this moment. Mm -hmm. And because both of you co-edited the volume, Documentary Archives of Suffering. This I will was, be for you, Vashka. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, in terms of the, what are the kind of archival potentials of this kind of documentary that is very much using reenactment in certain ways and very strategically pulling from different proper archives, but also deploying different ranges of media. So in that moment when he's showing the clip on his laptop to the two sons, it kind of reminded me of, you know, the video-making strategies of activists in the 70s, doing instant replay with the communities that they would film yeah. and have them mm -hmm. immediately respond um, to what had been videoed. Yet at the same time, I'm aware that these kind of media forms are also very precarious and oftentimes don't make the director's cut or the extended cut or um, you know all of these kind of different ways that these clips or the exchanges between Adi and Joshua seem so central to the message of the film. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if this is even a coherent question, but there seems to be an archival question there mm -hmm. and I yeah. was just wondering yeah. if you could comment on it. I think the first point about that, this not being a historical film, I think that's where he's referring to historical films as a certain kind of stable genre. Like they have their, you know, like we were talking a little bit ago about how there is not really much footage of like, you know, the usual kind of archival footage or, you know, the talking heads where the historian or the political scientist comes and presents the expert knowledge, right? But it's more ground up. You know, and that, of course, is another approach to history, or history shot through with memory, you know, however you want to put it. So it's not the historical film in the top-down way. I think that's what he means. That's why he didn't kind of want to get to that uh, in a kind of klutzy way, you know, like American responsibility, right? Although it's completely framing the whole, both the films. Obviously, and there's enough that he is able to put in there for me to ask the question, you know, um, about the archive. Yeah, about the archive. Um, right now, there's a conference going on in the South, and I think it's in Missouri. And I know that a number of people who are Shoah scholars are convening, such as Noah Schenker and Dr. Regina Longo, are going to talk. And one of the things that they're talking about are the outtakes of Shoah which I think it was, what was it? Something like 300 hours of outtakes. Is that what Regina has taught us? And so the film itself is nine and a half hours, but there are a number of interviews within that film. And uh, for example, the, the guy who was part of the Polish underground, uh, Jan Karski, is that right, Harold? And um, other, so, so now scholars are sort of saying, how was the film shaped from these, these other 10 hours of film that were shot with any particular interview subject. And so, you know, historically, this, this will be, that is part of the archive already. It's being preserved. It's even being made, made available online, I believe. So if, if, in fact, it's the case that, well, we know it's the case that there is always other footage, this, this could be part of an archive, too, that would be available in the future for scholars. I'm not sure exactly how that relates to your question about collectivity, but, but at least addressing the archival aspect. It's funny, you know, one of the biggest fights we had while we were doing, doing that book was about the archive. 
I mean, what is the archive? And for <laughs> Janet, she told me, come on, not everything is part of the archive. I'm like, no, no, it is. And then I slowly realized we are saying the same thing, just coming from it from two different angles. It's that, that potentially I'm saying everything could be an archive if it's made into an archival thing, you know. Um, whereas she's saying, like, you know, just, just because it's out there doesn't mean it's an archive unless it's framed as being part of the archive. It's mobilized as some archival material. Kind of related to both Rachel's and Vishnu's question, it seems that to me, in the absence of um, the talking heads or the dead body in this film, the living body, in a sense, becomes an archive. Mm. And I, I wonder um, about that, um, the father uh, figure, whether mm. um, his body kind of serves as an archive of suffering that yeah. can yeah, that's stand in great, contrast to the, the um, reenactments that are also um, a living archive of what's happened in the past. Thank you all for such great <laughs> questions and, and comments. And for living this experience together. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.